It's beautiful this morning. Did you notice that? I just think it's amazing that you guys came and packed out this room to worship God. So I'm not going to waste your time. We're going to get into God's word together as we continue a four-week teaching series in the book of Ruth. So if you'll turn to Ruth chapter two, Ruth chapter two, as you turn in there, got some exciting news this morning. The Colts season schedule has been released. I love this time of year. I think after the draft and the results of free agency, we're going to go 27 and 0 this year. I made the mistake of saying 17 and 0 at the last service, and somebody came up and said, Josh, we're going to win the preseason, the playoffs, the Super Bowl. So 27 and 0 this year. Come on, who's with me? Yeah, some of you don't, I don't feel like you believe. So you're like, yeah. I, you know, I, I'll get it. I love this time of year when it comes to football because it's like the draft solved all of our problems. It's amazing. We're all positive and, and celebratory and we raise our expectations. And I find that we have very high expectations for the general managers and coaches of our professional sports programs here in Indiana and very low expectations for what God could do in our life. I want to talk about your expectations for God this morning and what he is capable of doing in your life. And if you're here and you've given up hope, let's be frank, you don't hear from God. You're just going through the motions. I want to get you to dream again for what's possible with God in your life. To dream for your marriages, to dream for your children, to dream for your, your work life, to dream for the impact and mission that God has called you to do and the difference you can make in our society and culture as followers of Jesus. That's the heart of what I want to talk about. But the reality is we don't dream instead of we set our expectations low from God because we've often suffered disappointment and pain. And so the question I want to start with, have you ever needed a helping hand? Come on now. Ruth in this passage, if we're going to look at, she needs a helping hand. A little recap, if you missed the first week, we've got this guy named Elimelech, which means my God is my king, who no longer trusts God as his king. And so he goes to a foreign land where they worship a God that actually participates in child sacrifice because there wasn't food for them in Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread. The irony's thick in this passage. And Elimelech dies there in that foreign country in Moab. His two sons had gotten married. They also die. So now there's his widow, Naomi, and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And Orpah, which means stiff-necked and stubborn, doesn't trust God, and she leaves her mother-in-law. But Ruth, this foreign Moabite woman, trusts God in that moment and chooses as a friend and companion, which is what her name is, goes with Naomi back to the land of their forefathers. And it's going to be there that God does this amazing story. But when they get there, they're starving. They don't have food and they're going to need a little help. And God's going to provide it. Are you ready to study God's word together, church? Come on. It says this in verse one of chapter two. Now, Naomi, the mother-in-law, had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, her husband, whose name was Boaz. In fact, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. 
As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, whom was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvester. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Now you may think that all of a sudden he's got his eye on this woman and he's looking to court her, but the passage doesn't say that. He never references anything about any type of romantic relationship, although it's going to eventually end up there in the coming chapters. Already ruined the story. In this chapter, he simply is like, who is this person? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Naomi and Ruth have nothing to eat. And so Ruth, being younger, goes out into the fields, essentially looking for scraps. She's going behind the harvesters after they've already harvested the crop to pick up whatever is left over so that she might find some scrap foods from their garbage and take it back and have food for her and Naomi. And that's the best she could even think of. The fact that she was allowed to go in that field in the first place was a huge sigh of relief. But what we're going to see to come, she won't just pick up the scraps. Or even in that culture, it was common to allow foreigners to allow them to harvest or pick up the the, the food from the sides, the perimeter of the field, because that's where, you know, animals got and, and, and pests got in. But in the center of the field was where the bumper crop was in that day. But she's going to be allowed to even go there. She came in looking for scraps and she's going to leave pretty differently. See, as we get into this, in the depth of it, God is going to provide. But if you go even a layer deeper that we won't even talk a lot about this morning is when you go really deep, the heart of it is that God loves Ruth. And I want to tell you this morning that you may have come in here, a foreigner feeling far from God, not understanding his ways or even what church is about. You may have come in here hurting and broken. You may be labeled a bad person. You may be an addict. You may be struggling and uh, cheated on your spouse. You may have come in here and been so hurting and broken and far from God that you never think he could work in your life. I want to tell you today that God loved a Moabite woman so much he's going to provide for her. God loves you right where you are today. You are his creation. And I want you to experience the depth of God's love for you this morning. Will you pray with me, God? I thank you for the story of Ruth. It has challenged me this morning. I know that there are people in here that are on their last leg, spiritually speaking. They don't hear from you, God. They've given up hope that their life could look differently. They've given up hope that you could use them like a Boaz to make an impact in the community. And they need to start dreaming again, God. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would ignite a fire here that spreads in our households and around our community state, around the nation, God, that the world could look differently because of what happens here today. Use this, Lord Jesus. Speak to us. We acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit here. Pierce our souls. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. And all God's family said, amen. Amen. You know, I was thinking about this passage and about the low expectations that we have for God sometimes. And uh, I got another story for you this morning. It's about my kids again. If, if <laughs> one person was excited, if, 
If you're like, all you do is ever talk about your kids, like, I'm in that season of life. I got nothing else. You're going to have to deal with it. And, you know, all of my boys, my two boys, for some reason, I don't know why, my daughter picked up on things pretty quickly, but my sons, like, tying their shoes. Anybody out here ever tried to teach a kid how to tie their shoes? I'm going to pray. Please pray for me. I don't know what it is. I'm terrible at it. I've tried it all. I've done the loop, swoop, and pull, the rabbit ears, the bunny ears. I've done it all. It doesn't work for my boys. But in fact, here's how it went with Jet, my uh, youngest. He's now seven. And I tried to teach him how to do it. And I'm like, oh man, that was perfect. He's going to get it. But here's what he did instead. I was like, Jet, let me show you how to tie your shoes. He's like, you can't do that. That's impossible. I was like, I think you have pretty low expectations for me, son. I can do this and so much more. And like, I, I showed him how to do it. And then he was like, oh my goodness, you really did that. It was, like, it was like magic before his eyes. He was blown away. I saw Johnny Magic, uh, John Mobley in here earlier. It's like, as a father, I finally knew what that felt like. He's blown away. And then he didn't go, oh, this is great. Now I could learn how to do it. He did it first. And then I tried to show him how to do it. And I thought he's going to get it. He tried it one time. It didn't work out so well. He got frustrated, gave up and says, I can't do it. Then he made the decision in his head that as a father, I was a miracle worker so I could tie his shoes until he was 85 years old. And I find sometimes with our heavenly father, first of all, we have very low expectations. We don't think that it's possible for him to do things that are super simple for him. He's like, are you serious? And then other times, once he provides for us, we sometimes set our expectations that he will become like a genie in the bottle and we will create the same problems over and over again, and he will just come in and solve those problems. And you say, what do you mean? Like, for instance, maybe you got into financial debt and financial trouble, and God provided a, a job or some help in order to get out of that. And then you went back and you just went to poor stewardship again, biblically speaking, and you found yourself right back into debt, into the same problem, and then he bailed you out, and then you went back, right back and you just have this cycle of going right, instead of changing the issue that's causing the problem in the first place. In some of our dating lives or our marriages, we create these issues and we pray to God and please come and help me. And he comes and provides. And then we go right back and do the exact same thing again, never fixing the habits that's causing the problem in the first place. He's not the genie in the bottle for our problems, but he's also not the one who is incapable of helping us in our times of need. You see the tension of that in the story of Ruth when she needs a helping hand. When Ruth needs help, Got three simple points for you. When Ruth needs help, number one, Boaz protects her. God's going to use this guy in their community named Boaz, who becomes incredibly significant, kind of a co-star in the story of the book of Ruth. But she didn't know all of that and what was going to occur. Look what happens here in verses 8 to 10. It says, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go in and get a drink from water from the jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Now, the first question to ask is, why is Boaz doing this? our natural inclination would be that he's after something. 
But this entire chapter does not mention in any way, shape, or form any type of romantic development. That will happen eventually, but it's not in this chapter. In fact, it even will define why he's helping her in in verse 11. It says, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. He's not doing this because he's after something, some type of transactional relationship. He's doing it because it's the right thing to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. The Shema, the greatest commandment in scripture. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Can you really love God if you don't love your neighbor? And so he's simply living out the tenets of the Christian faith. He sees a need. He has the ability, the power, and the authority to provide. And so he does it. That's it. He gets nothing in return for this. He's just simply sacrificing and giving it up. And it might be hard in a world where we often see humans who are selfish, or even let's get real for a second with some of the toxic masculinity out there. When we think of men, we think of people who are after things, particularly in romantic relationships with women. And yet here is a man that is choosing to honor God before himself, to honor Ruth before himself because she honored God in her life. There's this pattern now that God is gonna use Boaz to provide for her just as she was willing to be sacrificed to provide for Ruth or for, for Naomi. The pattern of the Christian walk is that we help one another, not because we have an advantageous, advantageous relationship that's going to provide a need that we want met, but because it's the right thing to do. We often find, though, in our dating lives, we do that very differently. We don't do the right thing to honor God and trust he's going to provide the person we want. We have to go out and make it happen. Now, I'm not telling you if you got somebody that you're interested in and you're single and they're a God-honoring person that you shouldn't go for it. But I am telling you, that the heart of it isn't that you do something because you want something in return. The heart of it is you do it because it's the right thing to do for that person. He had the ability to meet the need that Ruth and Naomi had, and so he was going to provide for them in their time of need. By the way, that's the same thing that is true in marriages and relationships. I don't know why sometimes in marriages we turn our spouse into some type of transactional relationship. Can we just get real for just a moment? Right? Like, have you ever heard somebody? I've done uh, premarital counseling. I don't do much of it today, but I did it for many, many years. And I can't tell you how many times in premarital counseling we would talk about uh, finances and sex and other relational things, and it would always come down to some type of transactional relationship. Like, okay, I'm going to take the trash out. Why are you going to take the trash out? Because if I take the trash out, then she or he is going to want to be attracted to me in that way so that we can connect on a sexual level. Will we get real? Probably not bad practical advice. But in relationship, it's not about transaction. And I remember talking to one couple in particular, like, oh, you don't take the trash out so that this will happen in return. You take the trash out because it's the right thing to do to honor your spouse. My wife's like, did you hear your own sermon this morning? Because I need you to listen up. For each of us in our relationship, in that interaction with our spouse on that physical level, it's because we want to honor God first and others and our spouse second, right? But each of our choices in our marriage relationships is in order to put God first and our spouse second. We don't do things to get things in return. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's what Boaz is doing here. 
Let's go deeper for just a second. When we have the power and the ability and we see empathetically someone in our culture and society who is hurting that we can help, the way of the Christian is to meet the need and to help them. That's why we have outposts here. Uh, you know, it's like a small group. We've come from a church where maybe they have that. But instead of the small group just being inward focused, we're asking you to meet the needs of the community, to help people. We even have financial grants that you could apply for to meet the needs of people that you see. You don't have to wait. You can actually provide. As Christians, we're called to fight and protect for those who can't protect themselves, to have empathy for those who are hurting. Let's get real for just a second. In June, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of George Floyd. We talked about that after it happened on, for a number of weeks. And I want to tell you this morning, one of the worst things I think happens in our culture is when we politicize things on the right or to the left and that we can only look through a political lens rather than through the gospel. The gospel calls us to empathetically hurt for those who are hurting to meet needs. I don't care which end of the political spectrum you end up on, but to hear from people of color who are hurting and say, it is our job and our culture to hear and to empathize with them. By the way, I just might as well get it all out there this morning. I know with all the things going on today in our culture with the unborn, with the women's bodies, that the right of a Christian is to fight for life in every aspect for it. And yes, I truly believe you can fight for people of color, you can fight for unborn children, and you can fight for women's uh, lives and protection all at the same time as a follower of Jesus. Why do we politicize things on one end or the other rather than saying the way of the Christians to empathetically see a need and to provide help and resources? That's all, that's all that's happening in this passage. Boaz sees Ruth is hurting, Naomi's hurting, and rather than going, well, what's going to happen? What am I going to get in return? What's this going to do to my portfolio? He just simply is like, oh, I can help. I'm going to help. And I think that's when you see the overflow of God and the Spirit in our lives. Number one, Ruth, uh, Boaz protects Ruth. Number two, God provides more than Ruth is even going to need. We have so low expectations for God and His provision. Look what happens here. Verse 14, if you go down to there, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. She went from picking up the scraps behind the harvesters to eating bread, having wine vinegar, sitting down for a meal. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. God didn't just provide a field that she could go into. Now he provides, she gets to sit down at the restaurant, have a nice meal. She's got so much food left over. She's taking it home in doggy bags so that Naomi can have a little bit of the goodness too. That God's provision overflows in her life. Now look, we're not the, you know, the, the uh, prosperity gospel place. I don't believe that being a Christian means that you're always gonna be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It, it does mean though that we have a relationship with God where he can provide for us. Now, Naomi and Ruth were hungry. There were moments where they were really hungry and they were lost and they didn't know where God was. And those are the valleys of our lives. But here, as they're beginning to come out of the valley, they see God's storyline beginning to provide for them in a way they couldn't even anticipate. 
It doesn't just stop with them having a little leftovers to take home. Verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even put out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He's like, give her some of the good stuff too. Not just the scraps, but some of the stalks themselves and don't rebuke her. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she thrust the bar- barley she had gathered and it amounted to an about an afa. And we have no idea what that means. <laughs> I had to look this up. It's, it's about a bushel, about a bushel of grain. Essentially, it was enough meals to provide for not only her, but also her mother-in-law, Naomi, for at the very least three to four days worth of food. That he started with the scraps, then she gets a nice meal, then she's taking extras home, and now she's getting food for the entire week. That when God begins to provide for her, she has more than enough that she needs. And when she made the decision to follow Naomi, she had no idea how all this was going to work out. And I want you to see throughout the four chapters of Ruth, the good news of Ruth is that over time, you're going to see God's plan for Ruth's life begin to fulfill, be fulfilled. By the way, that plan doesn't just go within her lifetime. It goes for thousands of years of human history. As we talked about last week, eventually her and Boaz get together. They have a child named Obed. Obed is going to become the grandfather of King David. 14 generations after David comes Jesus from the lineage of David. That she's the great grandmother of King David, this pagan Moabite woman all because of choosing to be faithful to the decision God had given her. We think the small choices in our life to do the right thing, to help people in need, to meet their physical and spiritual needs, to put others before ourselves, isn't going to have any significance. Why even bother? No one's even going to notice. And sometimes it's the small decisions that lead to the biggest spiritual rewards in our life. But I find that most of us as Christians have a poverty mindset. You know what I mean when I say that? I'm not talking about financial poverty. I'm talking about spiritual poverty, but let's talk about financial poverty for a second. Have you ever met a child who was adopted, who came from a home where they didn't know where their next meal was coming from? It's very common in adoption that they'll go to the pantry and they'll take food and they will hide it places, put it in their pockets, save it for later, stuff themselves till they can't eat anymore because they are so afraid they won't have their next meal. That's what it's like when you've known that type of poverty. And some of you, you have been spiritually disappointed before. God didn't answer your prayer the way that you wanted. You're afraid to dream again, afraid to believe that God could provide for you in the ways that you need. And so you look to take every little scrap you can get and you don't care who you hurt in the process or how you don't trust God or what he's doing in your life. And you've stopped hearing from him or even caring what he's up to. No fingers pointed this morning, but it's part of the jadedness of 21st century American culture where I'm going to get mine and you're going to get yours. It's the way of the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy and cause division within our communities rather than the saying that other human isn't my enemy that I need to fight against and keep them from getting mine. But actually the enemy is the enemy, the Hasatan, the adversary, Satan, the devil. He is the one that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the one prowling like a roaring lion. And what I need to do instead is to hear from the Spirit of God to say, we are a community to help one another along the path of Christ together. It's a beautiful thing of the local church, but we have such a poverty mindset that we're afraid of being disappointed. It's like the theologian MJ from the latest Spider-Man movie says, 
If you expect disappointment, then you can never really be disappointed. And we do that with God all the time. My marriage isn't going to change. So, you know, just kind of get through it, survive. But the kids are always going to have their problems. The addiction's always going to be there. We're always going to have, you know, the hurting people and the broken people and the racism in our culture. We're going to have issues. It's just going to happen. We're in a fallen world. There is sin. And there is some truth to that. Would you all agree? But the reality is because of the work of the Spirit of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand that we can see the, a glimpse of what heaven will be like when the believer allows God to use them enough to make an impact to meet the needs of our community. We have to stop having a poverty mentality for what, what God could do. We, we never expect God, I'm going to stop dreaming. I'm never going to write the book. I'm never going to start that business or that nonprofit that God is calling me to make an impact with. I'm not going to grow my financial resources to go out and help people in need. I'm not going to make any of these choices. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand, watch lots of Netflix, play on my phone apps. And then one day when I die, hopefully I didn't sin enough that I go to hell and I go to heaven instead. What a poor substitute for the life God could give us. She's going to get every need met and then some. It's what the gospel tells us, Luke 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That when you live a lifestyle where you're counting on God to show up, a, a generous life, financially, yes, but spiritually as well, that you live for other people before yourself to honor them first before yourself. God then uses you in a way to make an impact that can last all of eternity. And you know what happens in the process? He will provide for you in ways you didn't see coming. Ruth wanted the, the scraps, but she got the VIP treatment by the end of this. And we don't do it for that. When we do it for that, it's a transactional thing of us trying to get something we want out of God. He's not your genie in the bottle. Remember the tension I talked about? We do it because it's the right thing to honor God. Let me give you an example. So when we first started the church, a three-year-old church had, you know, God was reaching people. We were baptizing people in a horse trough in this little lease building. And we had people sitting on the floors. We were doing five services in this tiny little facility. And then we found this property for sale that we're all meeting in today. And uh, we had been told by somebody, if we did a really great job raising funds, we could raise 100000 But if we did a really good job, we could raise $250,000, but no more than that. And we needed $700,000 for the down payment on this property. And, and we didn't need it in two years like we were planning. We needed it in two months. And so we just told the church that. And all these families sacrificed and gave $400,000 in two months. And then five families lent an additional $300,000 by borrowing against the mortgages of their homes, which don't ever do that. <laughs> Dave Ramsey won't like it. I'm about to tell you, I like it. <laughs> Larry in the back. But, but here's what I'll tell you. They, they felt that God was telling them to do this. And we told them, we're going to try and pay you back within two years. And because God used that and we moved in here as a three-year-old church and all these people began to come to Christ, we were able to pay them back within a year. And, and I always look back at that and just go, man, that's unbelievable. And in my own life, I remember during that season, my wife and I praying and like going, what are we going to do? And we thought of a number that seemed impossible. And we said, we're going to try to do that. And then you know what happened? We actually did it over two years. And then this crazy thing happened. At the end of the two years, we, we actually ended up with more money in the bank account after giving all of those resources away than when we started. And we weren't robbing anybody. 
We didn't cheat on our taxes. It was just, I can't explain it to you. Part of me thinks, how much money were we wasting beforehand? But, but then I started thinking like, okay, sometimes God may not make you wealthy and give you every desire, but he's gonna provide for you and overwhelm you with what he can do when you count and dream again that he could actually provide for the mission he set before you. So teachers, when you see the kid in the classroom that everybody's given up on as a follower of Jesus, you don't give up, you pray. When you see the person at your workplace that you just can't stand to be around, you start dreaming of what they could look like if they actually knew Christ and begin to pray. When you see the kids and the grandkids in your family that just aren't getting it and they've got into things that aren't good and aren't honoring to God, you begin to pray and believe God could change their lives and make them look differently. When you see the people in our culture that truly are racist and are causing problems, you start saying, I'm not only gonna pray, I'm gonna be used by God with the ability I've been given to speak out about this. It's easier for a person uh, like myself with my hue to actually speak out on that because I have the ability to speak and I, I don't have to enter into that conversation while other people can't choose the color of their skin. They have to enter into it. I don't have to enter into it. I choose to enter into it because I wanna see the empathy that in our culture we could have for other people. See, the heart of all of this is not about politics. It's not about the things that we make are, you know, important in our society. It's actually about that God wants to you to believe that he could change things. He could make your life better to provide for your family, to meet the needs in the community. The third or final point I want to get to is that God doesn't just provide a meal or extras or even the VIP treatment. He's going to provide a kinsman redeemer. Oh man, I'm so glad he did that, but I have no idea what that is. Look, look, look at the passage. It says, then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. She said, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, most translation call that a kinsman redeemer because it was your next of kin. And essentially, it's that if you had a debt that you couldn't pay in that culture, do you know what you would do? You would sell yourself as a servant to someone else, essentially a slave until the year of Jubilee because you couldn't pay your debts. So you would serve them as a means to essentially become a slave so that you could actually afford to live. But there was this role that was created that was a kinsman or guardian redeemer. And this person who was a close relative didn't have to, but it was thought that it was the right thing to do to step up and pay the debts for that close family member who couldn't pay their own debts. And it just so happened of all the fields and all the world that Ruth could have walked into when she first gets to town, she just happened to walk into one of the closest kinsman redeemers that she had and she didn't know it. Do you think that God knew that? Do you think that she was there by mistake? Throughout all of this story, you see these small choices of choosing to go with Naomi and then choosing to go out and work and try and provide and just happen to go into the right field at the right time that will provide for her. We think those small choices are insignificant, but sometimes they are the greatest choices. And I told you last week at this service that really at the heart of this is a glimpse of what's to come. That the gospel, the good news of Ruth was that Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, is gonna show up and not just give them a few meals or even meals for a week, but it's gonna redeem them. 
which is exactly what in the New Testament that this is prefacing as it's in the lineage of Jesus. The reason Ruth is also in the Bible, it's going to lead to the birth of David, which will lead to the birth of Jesus, who is the greatest kinsman redeemer that doesn't just save and redeem one family member for one time, but anyone who chooses to receive the free gift that he has offered to us. It's the reason that he had to pay for it. He had to pay a price for it with his own life. First Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. First John 2, 2. He is the toning sacrifice. He paid the price with his very life for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. He redeemed us through the sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he paid the price. It's the free gift of eternal salvation, of God at work in your life now. You had a debt of the sin and brokenness in your life that you were never gonna be able to pay. And this great spiritual kinsman came into your life to pay the price for you so that you don't have to wait for the year of ju Jubilee to be free. You can experience freedom in Christ today to begin to dream again of how God could use your life to address the problems of our society, to say, God, use me to help those who are in need, to be empathetic with my brothers and sisters in Christ, to help kids who wouldn't be able to survive otherwise, to be there for working moms, to be there for people in our culture who need a helping hand. They have the hand, it's you. If the Spirit of God is in you, God could use you like he does with Boaz to meet those spiritual needs. But the great Boaz, Jesus, was the one who redeemed us in the first place and bought us at a price. So your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you honoring God with your body and your life? If you were redeemed and bought at a price, this great story, 1,100 years in the making of Ruth being redeemed by Boaz, what's gonna come in the next two chapters, leads to the redemption of Jesus Christ himself. And I think there are some of us in the room that we have given up on hope that our, our lives could look different, that we'll ever hear from God, that our marriages could look different, that our addictive habits could not just have victory, but freedom from, that our finances could ever get healthy. We've given up hope that we'll ever have a, a, a job or a career that actually brings meaning and purpose. We've given up hope that God will ever use us, that our family members and friends will always be the way that they are. They're going to hell in a handbasket, just encourage them along the way. And I wanna tell you the good news of the gospel is it doesn't have to stay that way. Ruth was a nobody that gets the VIP treatment that becomes a wealthy, important person in that community to live a life of impact. He can use you to impact your community as well. But you have to respond and receive that gift. He can give you the gift, but if you don't receive it, if you don't use it, if you don't dream, you'll never see God live the, the life that you were meant to live. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for every person here. God, I just want to acknowledge your presence here that you are with us right now. I just have to imagine that there are a lot of people in this room who are spiritually dry. They do not hear from you. And they're struggling with the pain that they've experienced in their life. And God, this morning, I pray that your spirit that is with us has pierced through the callousness that this world creates around us. 
that we might experience your empathy and that it would lead to empathy for our brothers and sisters around the globe. And so right now, if you're here and you have never received that free gift, you've, you know now that you were bought at a price. He's, he's given his life for you, but you have to receive that gift. Ruth's going to have to choose to be received by Boaz. And so if you're here today and you'd like to receive the gift of salvation, I want to give you that opportunity right now. Pray this silently as I pray to Allah. God, I confess that I need you. I repent of anything in my life that is not of you, my sin, my wrongdoing, my brokenness. And now I do this beautiful thing. I receive your free gift of salvation, your presence in my life. You are with me. I give my life fully to your Lordship, Jesus. We love you, God. Give you everything. And now, God, I pray for the Boazes in the room, those who have the ability to make an impact, that know you, Jesus, but they need to start dreaming again and believing that you're going to not only provide for them, but the mission that you're doing in the world could actually change things in our culture. If you have just been riding on the coattails for a while, instead of believing that God could use you as a world changer, I want you to pray this with me. God, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines anymore being a fan of what other people are doing. I'm going to allow you to use me to help people in need to proclaim the coming kingdom of God until you return, Jesus. So I surrender my time, my talents, my treasures to you as Lord. Use me, Jesus. We pray this in your name and all God's family said together, amen.